I just have to comment uh, on how beautifully and you sing and how I, I appreciate the vigor with which you sing. Um, and, and as we were singing the doxology, I was just looking out over you. You really are a beautiful people. Praise the Lord. Well, most of you. No, you, you really are a beautiful people. And I thank the Lord for you. What a joy it is. Well, let's go to the Lord together and ask Him to help us. So, Father, now as we come to Your Word, I pray that You'll speak. Help us to be attentive. Take away every distraction. Give us a heart for You, a mind set on You, eyes looking to You, ears listening to You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to turn back to 1 Peter this morning. We're going to come back again to our study through this, this great letter. Our text today, one verse, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's very important that we understand that this text is part of a context. And that's important whenever you're studying Scripture. You know that. We've talked about this many times, that you have to understand every text within its context. And we have to ask the question, what is the context here? And, and that's something we've been emphasizing for a number of weeks, which again is one of the benefits of expository preaching, of, of, of consecutively teaching through the Word, it gives us a reminder to keep our, our focus on the context. And I hope that you remember that by now as we've been emphasizing it week by week. And that is, we've been reminded that when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I were called out of darkness into His wonderful light in order to proclaim the excellencies of God. You and I, we said, have been called out to proclaim the supremacy of and the superiority of God in a world filled with lesser gods. You and I have been called to do that in every situation and in every circumstance and in every walk of life. Listen, you and I have the opportunity to show forth the excellence of Christ in the world as we relate, as we've been learning here, as we relate to, to human governing authorities, Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, as we relate socially in our workplace, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, then last week we began to learn as we relate in the realm of the home, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and now today another installment in verse 7. We have the opportunity to proclaim as Christians, as those who have been caught out of darkness into His marvelous light, we have the opportunity to proclaim something of the superiority, the, the supremacy of Christ in a world full, filled with lesser gods as we relate civilly, as we relate socially, and as we relate in the home. Now, last couple of weeks, we've had a lot to say about the concept of submission. Submission is one of the markers of a Christian in this present world. Submission takes place in the civil realm, before human governing authorities. It takes place in the social realm. It even takes place in the realm of the family. And we began to see that last week as we saw the role of the wife to submit to her husband. 
Now, what is submission? Submission, we said, is simply recognizing God, the God-given role. It's recognizing the God-given place and position of another. It's, it's not trying to ignore or deny that. It's just realizing the place and position that God has assigned. And we spent a good bit of time last week noticing how the Christian wife in the home is both precious and pleasing to God. It is a pleasing thing when a Christian wife lives her Christianity even in a home where her husband may not be a believer. And Peter addresses submission in the home. Specifically, the call on the Christian wife to submit to her own husband. What is submission? I really appreciated this definition given by Ligon Duncan. He said this. this make sure you re- remember this. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of a husband. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of a husband. That was our focus last week. That's what we talked about. How the Christian wife may win her unbelieving husband to Christ. And now this morning we come to one verse, verse 7. And as I remind you, it's important that we remember the context, we consider the context, and you'll notice just the importance of that is set right off at the very beginning in our English translation because it begins with the word likewise. Likewise, what does it mean? It means in the same manner. It means similarly. Similarly, husbands. Similarly, notice the, the context. It's tying it back to the context, things that we've already seen. In the same manner or similarly. In other words, Peter is continuing to speak in the context that we've already established. Now he's talking here about the Christian husband. He's talking about the Christian husband in the home and how the Christian husband influences his home for Christ. How the Christian husband proclaims the excellency of Christ in the home. And brothers, I want to say to you this morning... That's exactly what we're called to do. That's exactly what we're tasked with. To proclaim the excellency of Christ in the home. I want you to notice something. Peter is assuming something. He is assuming that an unbelieving world is observing the life of the believer. He's assuming that there is a believer who is being watched by an unbelieving world. Civilly. Within the realm of government, he's assuming a a, a Christian is being watched by an unbelieving world uh, socially in in the workplace, the master-slave sort of realm, and he is assuming that the unbelieving world is observing the Christian in the home. And that's why he tells us in chapter 2, verse 11, that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In fact, as far as I can tell... That's the main verb in, this, in the whole, this whole section. That's the main verb that seems to govern everything else in this section. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. How? By, and then he just piles on these participles. By keeping your uh, conduct honorable among the Gentiles. How do you keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles? Well, one, being subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Two, being subject to your masters as as you reverence God. Three, 
Wives being subject to your own husbands, which brings us to the word likewise in verse 7, chapter 3. Now, of course, in our English translation, that's what we take notice to. We take notice of the word likewise. But if you are reading the original, what would actually stand out to you is not the word likewise, but it's the word husbands. That's in what we call the emphatic position. That's what receives the emphasis. Peter moves from discussing the wives or the women to discussing the husbands or the men. What is a husband? It's a word. The word as it's used here refers to a human adult male in contrast to a female. Peter is speaking directly to Christian husbands. Now, we might think that's a given. We know what a husband is. We We might even think we know what a man is. Amazingly enough that somebody could know that, huh? But here we are in the midst of a dark world, and and we've been proclaimed out of darkness, and we need to proclaim something of the supremacy and superiority of God. And so we say that husbands refer to human adult males. And maybe even we put in the word what? Human adult biological males. That's what he's talking about. Likewise, or similarly, that is to say, to Christian husbands who may have an unbelieving wife. He's calling Christian husbands to their place and purpose in the home. He's saying, stay in your place. Husbands, stay in your place. Stay in your position. There's a place and a position to which you must subject yourself, Christian husband. And this morning, what I want to do is look at chapter 3, verse 7, in the time allotted, and make together with you two observations, which will help us to see that a Christian husband is an instrument used by God to bring the gospel to bear in the home. This text really summarizes the ministry of the Christian husband in the home. And there are two observations that we'll make. One, we'll observe, first of all, the husband's mission, and two, the husband's motivation. The husband's mission and the husband's motivation. Let me read the text again. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since or as they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that... Your prayers may not be hindered. The husband's mission. Peter is wanting these husbands, these human, adult, biological males, to put themselves in a position in which they recognize their God-given role, their God-given responsibility. And there's not a lot of travel log here in this verse. I mean, he just cuts right to the chase. There's not a whole lot of need for explanation here. He just gets right to the point. In other words, men, listen up. Men, listen up. This is for you. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian man? Of course, if you answer, no, I'm not a Christian, then that tells us something else that needs to be dealt with. But if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian husband particularly, this is for you. Now, I'm not, that doesn't give the rest of you just license to say, okay, let me start scrolling. All right? By the way, you shouldn't do that anyway. We keep track of that. We're watching what you're doing right now. All right? 
I'm just kidding. Well, maybe we are. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure that out. But I want you to pay attention and see how God says that Christians have a, an impact in this, in this world. If you are a young man today, maybe you are aspiring, hopefully you are aspiring to become a Christian husband one day. You want to become a Christian husband. So you should pay attention. There's lots of young men here this morning who need to perk up and really pay attention. There are too many, too many failures when it comes to being a godly man. And I don't want to lose sight of this text this morning. So listen. What I love as he addresses the, the husband's mission is that he speaks in terms of duty. He speaks in terms of responsibility. Do you notice how he is not speaking in terms of rights? He is speaking not in terms of rights, but responsibility. Some of you will remember Pastor Lusk used to say that the Christian does not have rights. The Christian has what? Responsibilities. And that's the way we're to think here. What is the mission of the man? What is the responsibility of the Christian husband? It's right here for us in black and white. The mission, should you choose to accept it, (laughs) is knowledge. And this message will not self-destruct. In fact, this message will continue on. It's going to abide. It's It's going to remain relevant for the rest of your life. It will remain relevant on into eternity. What is the mission of the man? The mission of the Christian husband is knowledge. Living together with understanding. That's what he says. Live with your wives in an understanding way. This is a a participle, actually. It's a a verbal adjective. It's an active description. We talked earlier about chapter 2, verse 11, where the verb is abstain from fleshly passions. And here is one way that this plays out in our lives. The Christian husband doesn't discount his wife even if she's not a believer. He stays living with her. He stays with her in the knowledge of intimacy and stays with her in the knowledge of love. Not only is the husband not abusive towards his wife, which was, is a tremendously countercultural thing for Peter to say. I told you last week, how wives were often the subject of, of, of awful abuse, the awful abuse of their husband. Not only is the husband not to act in an abusive way towards his wife, but listen, the Christian husband is to have this deep experiential knowledge of his wife. He knows her and is sensitive to, sensitive, meaning he's understanding of her needs, feelings, wants and desires. Now, let me say a few things about this. This live with your wives in an understanding way, this participle, it is a present tense participle. In other words, it's emphasizing a constant present reality. You are always to be living together with understanding. It's not relegated to only the time of your dating or the time of your courting. It's something that is always present, not limited to the first few weeks or months or years of your marriage. Unfortunately, the deterioration of the marriage relationship over time is something that is well known. It's become almost parabolic. I I came across an article, maybe you read the article as well, called The Seven Ages of a Married Cold. It reveals the reaction of a husband to a wife, his wife colds over seven years. For instance, the first year, he says, Sugar dumpling, I'm worried about my baby girl. 
You've got a bad sniffle, and there's no telling about these things with all the strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and good rest. I, I know the food's lousy, but I'll bring your meals from Rosini's, and I've already have it arranged with the floor superintendent. Second year. Listen, darling. I don't like the sound of that cough, and I've called Doc Miller to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl, please. Third year. Maybe you'd better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest to help you feel better. I'll bring you something to eat. Do we have any soup? Fourth year. Look, dear, be sensible. After you feed the kids and get the dishes washed, you better hit the sack. <laughs> Fifth year. Why don't you take a couple of aspirin? Sixth year. If you just gargle or something instead of sitting around barking like a seal... Seventh year, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? <laughs> now, the only reason that that's kind of humorous is because it kind of strikes a nerve. So listen, living together with knowledge is a present reality. It doesn't, it's not to diminish. It's constant. And it's not something, now listen, man, it's not something, and I'm saying this to all of us right now, it's not something, living together in knowledge is not something that takes a break a few days every month. The Christian husband is a student of his wife. A student. He, he understands that she's been created for and given to him by God. And, and thus he seeks to understand something of the gift that has created in his wife. You're to be a student of your wife. You are to make a deep and abiding experiential knowledge of your wife. Your mission in life. And I've seen this so many times in men. The men whom we would assume to be the most spiritual, those who've gotten themselves a theological education, those who can read highfalutin theology and all those kind of things, they're often the ones who are most insensitive and indifferent and inconsiderate and and dispassionate, a passive bunch of namby-pamby nebbish jellyfish. That's pretty good when it comes to their relationship to their wife. And that's that's what often takes the, is, is, is the case. We're to seek after a profound and persistent knowledge of our wives, something that is present and always growing. What are we supposed to know? What are we supposed to know about our wives? I sat down and I wrote these things that I need to work on and in my own life. And, and of course, this, he's talking here in the context, what if you have an unbelieving wife? How much more should this be the case if you have a what? A believing wife. Well, you should know, first of all, who they are. <laughs> well, that's, that's a big help. Yeah, which one's your wife? Uh, <laughs> but when I talk about knowing who they are, I don't mean just knowing their identity. I'm, I'm saying know what is unique about your wife. Recognize and appreciate her giftedness. Know who she is as a person. Know who she is as a creation of God and appreciate that about her. Not just know who she is, but know why she exists. I have to live together with my wife and knowledge, and I'm not to be confused or confounded. I have to understand not just something about her, but I have to understand something about God. I have to understand that she is a direct creation of God, and he knows everything about her, Psalm 139. Therefore, if I want to know something about her, I've got to get to know 
God. I've got to be close to Him. But not just to know that He created her, but know why. Why she created. Why she exists. I should become familiar with His design. I should become familiar with His intent for this this woman whom He has given to me. And as a leader, guess what, guys? We're responsible for leading her in that way. We're responsible for leading her toward that God-given intent. Know who she is. Know why she is. Know how she's doing. I'm not to permit there to be a gap in our relationship. There should be a continual responsibility to know how she is doing. I, I might have told you before, um, this is years ago now, uh, at Dr. Zodiati's funeral in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I was staying with a, a man, and I probably told you before, Dr. David Chigarupati. I think he was a, an Indian eye doctor who is no longer an eye doctor. He, he was now blind, but he was a good friend of Dr. Zodiati's, and I was taking care of him while we were there. And it was coming to bedtime-ish later in the evening. And I said, you know, can I get you anything, Dr. Chikopati? No, I, I just need a phone to be able to call my wife. And so I got him the phone and called his wife. And I listened as he, and now he's, he's 80 plus years old, how well being, being well advanced in years, how he talked so tenderly to her and so lovingly to her. And here after these many years, he asked her how her day was and asked her what had gone on in life and how everything was. And they were just talking back and forth. And he had these questions that I could tell was not just a, it wasn't just, he wasn't just pulling out of thin air. This was something he regularly did. And then he said, okay, honey, are you ready for bed? Yes, I'm ready for bed. Are you in your nightgown? Yes, I'm in your nightgown. Uh, I'm in my nightgown. Are you in the bed? Yes, I'm in the bed. Okay, close your eyes and let me pray for you. And I listened as Dr. Chigarapati prayed over what, he had, what she had told him about that day and how her day had gone and how he prayed that God would bless her and give her a good night's rest. And then he put her to bed, said, I love you. Good night and hung up the phone. And I said, you do that. Every night, he said, no matter where I am in the world, that's what I do every night. He wanted to know how she was doing. So you know who she is, you know why she exists, you know how she is doing, and then you ought to know what she needs. What is necessary for my wife to fulfill her God-given role? What needs does she have that God has appointed for me to meet so that she can be that which God has called her to be? Let me show you something. This is, turn with me to the book of Song of Solomon. This is dangerous. Look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Let me just read. I'm not going to read all these verses, but, but notice how the husband is is thinking about his wife. He's looking at her. Verse 1, chapter 4. Take note, men. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Can you, you see she's the wedding is getting ready to take place, and he says, your eyes are beautiful behind that veil. Now, this I'm not so sure about. Your hair is like a flock of goats. 
leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Uh, I'll explain that to you sometime. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. <laughs> like, has she ever brushed? Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate beyond your veil. You're like, well, what is that all about? Your cheeks. That's a word that actually refers to temples. And, and, and while I think maybe there's the picture here, he's just describing the features of her face. Perhaps he's talking about what's between her temples. He's describing her brain like a pomegranate. Have you ever looked inside a pomegranate? All these kind of things going on in there. And, and that's a perfect description of a woman. There's so many things going on in her mind. And he knows this and he's well aware. And he's like, what's going on in there? And, 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 and men, sometimes we get confused and confounded. And, and to this man, it's something beautiful and amazing. You need to know your wife. That's your mission. Not just know her, but show her, show her honor. That's the second part of the mission. Second aspect of the mission. Another participle. Peter loves participles. He's showing honor to the woman. We're not simply to live with knowledge in the sense that we are acquainted with facts, but that knowledge translates into an everyday giving of honor. Now, back in 1 Peter 3, 7, just let me explain this. When he says showing, that means to distribute, to give, to bestow. Honor is a word that has been translated earlier, even in the same, by the, by the same, in the, in the same text, as, as being referring to something that is precious. And I think that really captures the heart of, of what's communicated here. It is to esteem her, to value her as being someone who is precious. Matthew Henry said that the husband's duty is to, to, giving, to, to give due respect to her, Maintain her authority, protect her person, support her credit, delight in her conversation, afford her a handsome maintenance, and place a due trust and confidence in her. There are two things which govern this, this esteem in which do we are to hold our wives. First of all, notice the first governor, as. That word as, it means to the degree that. Showing honor to the woman to the degree that she is the weaker vessel. Some have pointed out that this is what he's talking about here is the lost concept of chivalry. When Peter refers to the wife or the woman as to the weaker vessel, he's not referring at all to her inferiority or anything like that, but of her greater value. She's called a weaker vessel. Someone has written that this is particularly used to priceless and fragile china or the sacred vessels used in the temple for the worship of God. We, we show honor to the degree that we understand her to be precious, priceless, fragile, like a precious, priceless, fragile vase. No less a vessel than us, no less useful than a man. The word weaker refers to the design of the woman in terms of her need for protection, and in terms of her need for provision. The point is not that the woman is weak while the man is strong. 
The weaker is a comparative term. The key letters in the word are E-R. If she is weaker, you are what? Weak. Right? She's weaker. We're not strong. And she's weak. No. There's a sense in which this conveys the divine, desi- the, the divine design of human biology. And women, you submit to that design. You don't try to rebel against it. You submit to that. And men, you submit to that design as well. You stay in your place. That's the kind of submission that you and I owe. We keep a context in mind. Suppose a man becomes a Christian. His wife remains an unbeliever. He's not to leave her on that basis. Not to just throw her out. No, he's to understand deeply and experientially about her. He is to show her great honor and to continue to live with her so long as she is wanting to stay. And he is supposed to cherish her as a precious vessel in the eyes of God. That's God's design. This brings the gospel to bear on the home. You see, that's the point. We bring the gospel to bear all the time when we exercise our God-given roles and responsibilities. Isn't that wonderful? It's marvelous. You don't just bring the gospel to bear by coming to church or by teaching a class or writing a book. You bring the gospel to bear not by sitting in some ivory tower somewhere reading theology, nothing wrong with that, but you bring the, 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 the gospel to bear in a brass tacks kind of way, focusing where the rubber meets the road. If you claim to be a Christian... You claim to love God, but, if, but you're rebelling against His design, you're just full of hot air. And we show honor when we recognize that God has created this beautiful vessel and she is your wife and we recognize her like that and we treat her like that. And second, we show honor not only to the degree that she's a weaker vessel, we show honor, you see where it says since? Guess what? Same word, to the degree that. To the degree that they are heirs with you in the grace of life. We show honor to the degree that we understand that she is an heir together with us in this grace of life. Now, what does that mean? Don't get confused by the word grace. Because some think it means that she's a partaker of this salvation. It doesn't mean this. What he's talking about here is he's saying that she is an heiress together with you in this tremendous gift of life together. Look back at Genesis 2.22 for a moment with me. And hopefully this will explain what I mean. Genesis 2.22. All the way back to the beginning. Genesis 2.22. Men, you need to have a 2.22 moment with your wife. What is that? Well, look what it says. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought to the man. Look what God does. He made a woman and brought her to the man. She is a direct creation and a divine gift. That's how you honor her. You are in this thing of life together. God has designed this life together. For you, and he's planned it all out, and she's an heir together with the with you in this life God has given. She's God's gift for this life that He has entrusted to you. So that's the husband's mission: knowledge and honor. 
And can I say something to you young women here today? That's what you expect. That's what you are to look for in this guy who's going to court you and try to woo you. Right? That's what you're to expect. But then look at the husband's motivation. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Look, let me read it again. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now here's the so that, into this, unto this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's the motivation. Your prayers not being hindered. <laughs> There's an unmistakable link there's an undeniable link between how you treat your wife and your prayer life. If, if you are mistreating your wife, you cannot be enjoying close communion with God. One man said, you can't ignore your wife and get through to God. When he says here that your prayers be not hindered, that word hindered is actually a military term. Uh, it refers to when an army digs a trench in the road in order to stop the enemy's advance. The, your prayers have this unbridgeable gap, this unbridgeable hole. You, it, it doesn't reach God when you, when you are not treating your wife with knowledge, living with her in knowledge and showing her honor. God, it's, it's like this garbled message, like Charlie Brown's teacher. Remember those days? Well, wah, 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 wah. That's what your prayer sounds like to God. Now, here's a question for you. Remember the context. The context is assuming that there's an unbeliever in the home. What do you think it is that the Christian husband is praying for? He's praying for his wife to come to faith in Christ. Right? But listen, if he's a bear to live with, or if he's a passive milk toast of a man, how do you think that's going to impact his prayer? His prayer to God that she might be saved is being hindered, it is being interrupted. He's unsaying with his life what he is saying with his prayers, what his prayers are praying. And thus his motivation for this is so as to. to that, that his prayers be not hindered. You, you can't be praying, God, save this awful woman. That's not how God works. Similarly, that's how uh, you, you, you wives can't pray that God would, be, would save your wife or your husband while you're nagging him and haranguing him and being a terrible partner. It just doesn't work. That's not how God works. So, the mission, men, know your wife. Knowledge and honor. Why? So that your prayers are not hindered. Let me close by telling you a story. A story about a man named Johnny Lingo. Sounds like someone on a Old Western movie, Johnny, uh, that's Johnny Ringo, right? Or something like that. Anyway, Johnny Lingo. He was a man who lived in an island in the South Pacific. All of the islanders, all of his 
fellow islanders always spoke highly of him. He was a a strong young man, a good-looking young man, an intelligent young man. He had a, a tremendous future in front of him. But when it came time for him to find a wife, well, he really confused a lot of people. You see, the woman Johnny chose was a plain woman. She was skinny and she walked with her shoulders hunched and her head down. She was a a shy, hesitant, older woman than most of the women who would be chosen as marriage material. And it seemed like she would probably just be passed over and never be married. But Johnny loved this woman. And what surprised most of his fellow villagers was the offer that Johnny made for her. Well, what do you mean? Well, you have to understand, in order to obtain a wife in that area, you paid for her by giving her father cows. I mean, if you, if you paid four cows, you really had a prize of a wife. If you paid six, ha! Maybe the other villagers think, well, good for a woman like this, maybe, maybe one, two cows the most. But he gave her father eight cows. Everyone laughed about it because they believed that the father-in-law really pulled one over on Johnny Lingo. Some thought it must have been his mistake. But months after the wedding, there was a visitor who came from the United States, came to the islands to trade, and, and he heard the story of Johnny Lingo and his his eight-cow wife. (laughs) Upon meeting Johnny and his wife, the visitor was totally taken back because he didn't find a shy, hesitant woman with her shoulders hunched over. He found a beautiful, poised, confident woman. The visitor asked about this transformation and Johnny's response was pretty simple. He said, well... I wanted an eight-cow woman. And when I paid that for her, I treated her in that fashion. And she began to believe that she was an eight-cow woman. She discovered she was worth more than any other woman on the islands. And to her, that made all the difference. So men, husbands, How many cows is your woman? (laughs) And that's the only thing you're going to remember about this sermon today. (laughs) Let's pray together.